Today, many activists know the term apartheid best in relation to the struggle of the Palestinian people against Israel's brutal and racist control. But the system of apartheid was born in South Africa. From 1948, which is ironically the year that Israel was founded at Palestinian expense, the South African government imposed a regime of apartheid, meaning apartness, that institutionalised rigid and vicious racism. Blacks, so-called colours, that is people of mixed descent and South Asian migrants, and whites were to be kept completely apart, with blacks nominally citizens of tin pot independent statelets called Bantustans. But in practice, of course, the heavily armed soldiers and police of the white South African state were the real power on the streets of the black communities. And South African capitalists benefited from the control over black workers, making super profits by paying them poverty wages to work in the gold, diamond and coal mines and in the factories. Blacks weren't seen as worthy of citizenship or the vote, but they laboured as domestic servants in white homes. And there was always resistance. The African National Congress organised in the communities and black workers developed militant unions. And some of the first huge struggles were launched by young people, including school students. Today is the latest in our special segment of The Sound of Solidarity entitled I Was There, where activists who have taken part in key struggles tell their story. I'm talking today to Solidarity member Melanie Lazaro, who was born in apartheid South Africa and took part in a number of important protests before moving to Australia. You're listening to The Sound of Solidarity, brought to you by Solidarity. We're a revolutionary socialist group in Australia, and if you'd like to find out more about us, our website is solidarity.net.au. I'm David Glanz, and I'm recording this episode on unceded Wurundjeri land in Narm, or Melbourne. So welcome, Melanie. Thank you, David. Good to be here. Now, first up, can you tell us a little bit about your personal background? How did your family find itself in South Africa and what are your memories growing up as a child? Both my parents, their parents, moved to South Africa from London because they escaped the pogroms of Latvia and Lithuania and there were opportunities to go to far-off lands. A lot of Jewish exiles moved to South Africa at that time. My mother's parents lived in Kimberley where there was a lot of diamond mining and my father's parents were in Johannesburg where they ran small stores. I never met either my mother's parents nor my father's because my father was the last of the eight children and they were very old. Mm. And what was it like growing up in South Africa? There was always a sense of wrongness in South Africa, even though there was a normality of white people had domestic servants. But very early on, when I was in primary school, um, my third year of primary school, uh, that would be grade two, or I don't know what it would be in Australia, but there was a massive event called by the Pan-African Congress, which was a breakaway from the African National Congress. 
it was the Sharpeville shootings. A whole lot of black people in Sharpeville, which is not far away from Johannesburg, decided they would protest against the pass laws. And just to explain, the pass laws was enforced black people to carry a little book, a document, allowing them to be in white areas. The black population was probably 70, 80 or 90 percent of the population. However, they weren't allowed into white areas without this document that they hated because it was used as an intimidation process by the police to attack or vilify any black person trying walking around in their country and it was hated. And that was 1960 so obviously you were very young but do you remember how your parents or other people you you know reacted to all this? Yes I mainly primary school I remember the atmosphere amongst the teachers and the children just being very aware and nervous of a new development a new activism, a new status in South Africa that things weren't going to be the same. There was something on the move. Because many, many people were shot down at Sharpeville, weren't they? Oh, yes, yes. About over 200 people were killed and many injured. So it was as big as Soweto, but earlier on. And it began... A knowledge of resistance and certainly every everyone in South Africa knew things were wrong but not everyone was on the side of the oppressed. Let's take a step back a moment and look at apartheid as a system. The British Marxist Alex Kalinikos has written that apartheid was more than simply quote a particularly barbarous form of racial domination but rather and I'm quoting again the particular form in which capitalism developed in South Africa. So can you take us through how apartheid operated and its rules and and its impact, obviously, on black people in particular? Yes, I did investigate the history of apartheid very early on because I went on from school and did a university degree, just a BA, but I did industrial sociology where my lecturer was being tried under the suppression of Communism Act. And um, it was well known that the gold in South Africa, although it was the main industry, it was very deep and quite poor in its quality. And to get any profit out of it, the capitalist system need to may needed to make sure that they exploited the black people to the hilt. So the army and the police force and even the security police developed, um, not necessarily to do that, but in in the in the need to make capital viable in South Africa, which it did become a very rich country for some at the expense of people who were living in the most abhorrent conditions in the mines. In my introduction, I mentioned Bantu stands. Can you explain to listeners what a Bantu stand is? Uh, Bantu stands were small pieces of land where blacks were allowed to live and they were assigned according to their so-called language group. So there was possibly... Um, a few five or six Bantustans where they were allowed had to live they were p- 
poorly resourced. They had no electricity or water. They had very little schooling. And to be honest, most black people couldn't live there. They had no way of sustaining themselves. So most, a lot of people were in South Africa illegally. Whenever a black person was out of Bantustan, they had to carry a pass saying where they should be. And um, that was resented enormously because they weren't given the right to be out of their, their, these ridiculous small places where there were no resources or ways to eat or live. And these Bantistans, the fiction under apartheid was they were actually independent states. But I think even the most right-wing governments around the world were, were unprepared to recognise them. They were... It was it was a legal yes, fiction, wasn't it? Yes, that's correct. Mm. And Butaletsi was one of the most most well known leaders of Bantustan, who was ridiculed for ruling, mm. <laughs> for actually saying that he was a ruler of a so called little state, and it was absurd. You mentioned your lecturer was being prosecuted. Can you explain what the law was and um, what happened to him or her? Yes, his name was Eddie Webster, a remarkable man. He um, was being tried under the Suppression of Communism Act. He actually wasn't a communist, but this act was used against anyone who was left-wing, tried to do something in terms of organising. So he, uh, he was involved in organising the South African Labour Bulletin. It was very, very early on when I started, when I chose to do, and I can't explain why I chose to do this, but I chose to do industrial sociology as my major in South Africa. And that's where I learnt a lot at the the same time as what was happening with black struggle, strikes, the Durban uprising. I had someone who was keyed in to those movements who, who... made it very clear to us, to a small group of students, that the question wasn't black power, but class. And this is where he he introduced the concept of why the South African state wanted apartheid so badly. They needed their profits, and they needed profit levels, and they wanted to hold down the black population for apartheid's need to make a lot of money, to make a lot of money, not only for South African capital, but for world capital. It was quite lucky or informative to have so early on come across such an intellectual who was aligned to an explanation that made real sense. And I think that had an enormous influence on me. But the whole of the university, University of the Witwatersrand had an abhorrence of apartheid. In mo- the um, the student representative council or whatever it was called back then had a newspaper which was quite funny but irreverent. And at one stage they had a cover which had um, someone looking down a toilet saying, "Are you the prime minister?" Now in South Africa, where you could be arrested for anything, this was. You know, it just gave us permission to be against the system. Mm. I earlier mentioned the African National Congress. You mentioned the 
Pan-African Congress. There was and still is a significant communist party in South Africa. When did you start to become aware of these different opposition forces and what were their differing arguments and agendas? I think I wasn't as aware of those organisations as much as I was aware of what was going on on campus. So for me, it was the National Union of South African Students, NUSAS, which was liberal, but it was regarded as a threat, and some of its leaders were also imprisoned. And SASO, South African Student Organization, which was a black organization which split from the National Union of South African Students to with its um, concept of black power and black rights. They wanted their own organization and they were supported to a certain extent by NUSAS in their desire to build their own organization. I think I also was influenced by the kind of way that NUSAS operated very irreverently and it was this capacity of students to be over the top irreverent that gave students also the capacity to go out onto the streets and march. They were connected. Just another thought, when did Nelson Mandela start to become the towering figure in South African resistance that that we know him as today? Nelson Mandela was always known. He made a statement saying, I will live for democratic rights and um, I will dedicate my life for a country that is equal for black and whites. This is something I'm prepared to live for, but if need be, it's something for which I'm prepared to die. And that was on a little postcard that I had in my room. Anyone on the left knew Nelson Mandela as a figure of of respect. He had been um, arrested and went through the Ravonia trials, which I don't want to go into too much detail here, but it was a little farm where the ANC tried to get out of South Africa from, but they were arrested and put on trial and put in jail. And the jail conditions that most people who were arrested on the left and most black people were horrendous, like torture was um, horrific. Yeah, we knew Nelson Mandela as the leading force of resistance. I wasn't a fully-fledged socialist then, but certainly in the left, he was the most well-known resistor. Now, we mentioned your early childhood memory of Sharpeville, which was, in a sense, a, a civil rights protest. But as you became a young adult in 1973, something significant happened, which is workers in the city of Durban going on strike. Can you tell us why that was so significant and, and your involvement in that broader struggle. I know it was only very small, but nonetheless, (laughs) you're telling your story. Once again, it goes to the South African Labour Bulletin and the people around it and some of the lecturers in, in my university who were involved in that and their work with building the labour movement in South Africa. The unions had been fully repressed and illegal and they were fighting for for their legality. And the beginnings of a union movement were forming in Durban. 
about 100,000 workers walked out of their workplace in Durban and just took over the streets. It was never seen before in that capacity and that um, immense show of strength. And there wasn't enough power for of the state to deal with it. They couldn't put everyone in jail. So to a certain extent, the the trade union movement was born out of that struggle. And there was an inquiry into whether trade unions should be allowed. And there was some belief that trade unions could control workers. So the negotiations to have trade unions rather than not have them began out of that struggle, but also workers' strength and power began in Durban. And it had an incredible impact on us because on our little cohort in the university, because our lecturers were involved in the leadership of some of the, and part of that walkout. Were there protests on campus in solidarity? In, not in 73 as much. The protests were in 76 around the Soweto uprising, which was definitely linked to the beginning of the 73 up, uh, uprising strikes. Um, most people just think, ah, oh, Soweto existed in a vacuum, but it didn't. There were workers' struggles, workers' strikes leading up to the children of Soweto who were told they had to do their schooling in Afrikaans, which they resented. But there were struggles that led up to that, that particular point. And for people who are not familiar with this, we should point out Soweto is actually short for Southwest uh, yes. Township, Soweto, yes. uh, but that's how it's known. And it's essentially a black suburb of Johannesburg. Essentially, yes, but it, it, whereas the white suburbs had electricity and water, the black townships, Soweto and Alexandra, which was right in the middle of Johannesburg, like in the centre, um, didn't have any services. And the discrepancy was so blatant, it was horrific. Tin shacks and no, no amenities that um, anyone with any humanity would have to be, uh, you know, just shocked. And what was the impact on political life in South Africa and on you personally of seeing so many students, high school students, so children, coming out on the streets in massive numbers, confronting the security forces, being shot by the security forces, but maintaining the struggle? This, this must have been an enormous moment for everybody. It was phenomenal. It was mind-shattering because the deaths of the students were recorded by a Life magazine reporter and that picture of Hector Peterson and his sister being carried went all around the world. But he was one person. There were many many more who were shot and many and hundreds and hundreds who were injured and that's not remembered mm. it's it's probably remembered as a a single incident but the Soweto uprising where students were uh, uh, opposing being taught in Afrikaans which they saw as the oppressor's language 
was symbolic. It was much more than that. They, they resented the fact that their parents weren't doing enough. They resented the fact that they, they were expected to, to go into a life of, of submission. They were refusing to do that. And their refusal and their bravery to walk out of their primary schools, which I later visited, I must say, um, was uh, impactful. It, it meant that we couldn't, anyone who wanted to do something about changing the world, even if you had a very liberal kind of understanding of changing the world, um, had to be involved in it. And um, there were marches led through the Johannesburg streets in support of the Soweto students and also joined by some of them that I joined, not through any organisation but just through the university's student body that led us into the streets of Johannesburg in support of Soweto. And it was um, one of the most important things I have done in terms of linking me to the necessity of struggle, even when things dip and there's not as much resistance. Out of the events in South Africa and the many, many years where it seemed like nothing would change, it taught me that at times things will change. It may seem like we're in a uh, stasis, but it doesn't stay that way. Reminding ourselves, this is 1976, you were at university. I, I read a blog post that you shared with me, written by one of your fellow students at that university. There were mass protests on the university, you marched off the university, you were attacked by police, but of course because you were white you weren't shot, but still there were mass arrests and people held in prison and so on. Paint a picture of of what yes, this was um, like. Yeah, a number of us were arrested and taken so to... So you were arrested? Oh yes, I yeah. was arrested and taken to um, John Foster Square, which was notorious. John Foster Square was probably diagonally opposite the university, but a bit further into the city. And it was the place where people like Ahmed Timol, a, a coloured resistor, had jumped out of the 10th floor now, there were numerous political prisoners who had, who had been held there and who had met their end through interrogation by the security police who were feared and hated. And John Foster Square was the centre of the security police and the, the attempts to um, hold back resistance. It was frightening. They kept us, white students, and of course they didn't do anything to us, but they kept us overnight. It's also the first time I realised the law is a farce because our lawyers from the university came to an agreement with the, the police that they would let half of us go and the other half they would give a, a sentence, you know, we'd, we'd have a criminal record. And they pulled, they pulled the names out of the hat to see who would have a criminal record or not. And I unfortunately ended up with a criminal record from South Africa, which I'm actually quite proud of, but it could have been that I didn't. So it was farcical, that arrest, but also frightening. Now, it was another 15 years or so before apartheid was 
formally defeated. A major development over that period was the rise of militant black trade unionism. So mm. it was foreshadowed with Durban, but really begins to take off in this later period. Very, very militant unions, the Confederation of South African Trade Unions, very strong organisation on the job. Why was this such a fundamental threat to apartheid? What actually happened in my period of you know, around the around 60s, 70s onwards is that the quality of gold and the capacity to mine decreased and um, South Africa depended less and less on its gold and minerals and diamonds and more and more on its manufacturing capacity. So most of the workers went into the car manufacturing, manufacturing um, all sorts of goods and collect, you know, they were collectivised and they started organising in trade unions. So the COSATU, which was the, the, un, the main, the broad union, um, was very militant at the time and they did manage to win quite a lot of better um, conditions for their workers. The problem was that it was a fairly small working class and a lot of people were unemployed still. But the trade unions did stand for a power that hadn't existed for a very long time in South Africa. So in the end, there was a negotiated transition. So apartheid was abolished, but many of the power structures and mostly the economic power structures were maintained under the the new situation. So there was a real sense, it seems to me, that the white bosses knew that the time was up and that yes. particular way of screwing workers was over and they had to find a new mechanism which included getting rid of the, the legal racial discrimination that existed. But there are very wealthy black people today, there are black politicians, there's a black president, but in many ways the lives for black workers in the townships has actually got worse. It's much worse. So why did this come about? Basically, uh, even though black people got their so-called equality, they're still living in conditions that are as bad as that they were under apartheid, if not worse. And the, and the system of capitalism continued. Um, there was no organised body in South Africa which managed to to understand or convince the majority that passing capitalism onto a black boss system would not change the system. And unfortunately, that is what happened. Um, there are Cyril Ramaphosa, one of the respected trade unionists who, who led magnificent strikes, is now one of the wealthiest people in South Africa with millions, billions of dollars. So that is um, a tragedy. And even very recently, the police force, which is now aligned to the, the new South African state, shot and killed miners on strike in Marikana. That was only um, 10 or so years ago, where the state operated exactly as the apartheid state would uh, a lot of people were shocked and just felt, well, what can we do? There's nothing further we can do. We, we gained 
um, our freedom, but now it's it's worse than ever before. So that it led to a bit of a, a demoralization amongst the black working class and even amongst the activists. The necessity of understanding capitalism as a system of oppression and operating against its heart, you know, it's the where bosses need their profit to carry on hasn't um, occurred in South Africa or worldwide. So um, the, ne the necessity of organising, as we do, as an international socialist tendency, um, as we do um, all over the world, is very important. Mm. Because the dominant left force in South Africa was the Communist Party, and as part of its Stalinist heritage, it argued that there had to be two stages. The first stage was the abolition of apartheid, and then there would be a future struggle for socialism. Whereas our argument, uh, drawing from the Trotskyist tradition, is that the fight against the racial oppression and the fight against capitalism would be one and the same, and that the black working class could break both systems. From your experience and from your observation, was that realistic? Uh, it's absolutely realistic because it is the only, the only way the South African capitalist or the capitalist system can be broken. I still have every belief that it's possible. It must be because otherwise it's socialism or barbarism, as you and I would both agree. But the, every, there's every chance that the working class will organise and get rid of a system which is failing more so now than ever before. And in South Africa at the moment, there was a shooting yesterday, the day before, in the Soweto townships. People are just going in, and, like in America, and shooting in, in Sabines or drinking places. Um, a lot of frustration and untargeted frustration. And also there's, um, there's um, you know, corona the coronavirus which is crippling the hospitals and making the health system worse than ever and much worse than it is here. Let's move to Australia so to speak because you did move to Australia. When you came here firstly I'm just wondering what your motivation was um, but secondly did you know that there was a significant anti-apartheid movement in Australia I had the privilege of being at Melbourne Town Hall in, I think it must have been 1990, when Nelson Mandela addressed the union movement here in Melbourne. And he thanked the union movement for its enormous solidarity. Did you know about that when you moved to Australia? Yes, I did. I did know that. And I also knew of the symbolic battles too, like the invasion of the rugby field. Where to stop the Springboks. To stop, stop the Springboks, because the Springboks were like God to, the, to many of the white um, and for sports people, who, people. I was going to say, for people yeah. who don't follow sport, we're talking about rugby union. Rugby union, yes. It was, um, rugby union in South Africa was um, something most, most white people followed. So it was obvious, it was good to, and black people knew that there was opposition worldwide when 
protests leaked into the symbolic systems. But yes, um, I didn't know the extent to which the Australian Union movement was in support of the black unions in South, Af- in South Africa. And it was when I came here that I began to both realise the significant support of the trade union movement uh, and particularly in refusing to unload ships. The dock workers refused to deal with apartheid um, ships bringing goods to Australia and that was incredibly significant and a support to the people in South Africa. I didn't know it at the time. I knew it peripherally but not directly. And of course, during the Springbok tour, it's remarkable how many unions imposed bans to stop that group of sports people travelling around. So <laughs> it, was, it wasn't just the invasion of the pitches, which is dramatic, but the, the very wide range of the union movement really underscores why we need to take back the right to strike. Yes. Because it's not just about wages and conditions, it's also about our ability as workers to deliver solidarity. And how to live, how to show that we are in support of struggles. Um, we need, we fundamentally need the right to strike. And I asked why you came to Australia. What was the rationale for that? Well, it was I needed to get out of South Africa. South Africa was literally driving me crazy. <laughs> I had a, well, it just was a personal thing. I had a partner at the time who was moving to New Zealand and I went with him and then it didn't work out. I got on the next plane and came to Sydney and didn't know anyone. I was walking around Sydney and I was in George Street and I walked into a bookshop called Gould's Bookshop and bought a book called Chibaro which was about the Rhodesian struggle and started talking to the person who owned the shop who was a traditional Trotskyist but he introduced me to a bit of the left in Australia and from there I met the international socialists some of them through just living in a in a as you, living in a group house with somebody called Ruth Goldhar whose brother was Jeff Goldhar who was in the international socialists I went to a meeting I went to my first meeting I thought these people are making sense and at the end they said any questions and I put up my hand and I said I want to join and (laughs) that sounds crazy but it's how it worked it just made sense to me that we need an international socialist movement and of course the international socialists are the predecessor to the solidarity group that we're members of today my, my final question is to sort of close the loop a little bit and bring us back to the question of Palestine because Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, a number of organisations have now explicitly said that Israel operates as an apartheid state, which is why I think where most people now, younger people, would, would know the term. So in many ways, the history of Israel and South Africa are very closely entwined. As a Jewish socialist who has fought oppression in South Africa, and I know who stands in solidarity with the Palestinian struggle, what can we learn from the South African struggle that will aid the victory of the Palestine liberation movement? First of all, I think it is solidarity. It is 
the fact that the Palestinian people being numerically smaller in their country, their country, we need an international movement and we would like to see an uprising in, in all Arab states in support of the Palestinian people. But, you know, wherever we are, we need to acknowledge that it's still Palestine, that that land has never been ceded, as Australia has never been ceded by the Aboriginal people here. And that's a, a, it's a fight that we continuously need to be aware of and support. Okay, well, on that note of, of struggle and solidarity, thank you very much for your time. Now, if people think this conversation has made sense, you can't actually raise your hand and ask to join Solidarity because we can't see you. But you can go to our website, solidarity.net.au, and there is a Join Solidarity button. Click on that and uh, continue the struggle that Melanie began many years ago in difficult circumstances in and South Africa. And will continue. <laughs> and will continue. Thank you. Thank you, David.